0: Well, how you doing, everybody? This is Black Men's Sunday. I'm your host, Corey Murray, a show about generational wealth, about black finance. And you know that leads me to our guest speaker today, Black Men's Sunday. We have Dr. Levon Bracey on the line and I call her Mama Bracey, but Dr. Bracey, professionally, I'm going to just let you know his brother's on here for all, from all over the country. Eric, he's in Alabama. We have brothers in Alabama all over the country. And then this is also a podcast. So without further ado, mm-hmm. welcome to Black Mess Sundays. And let me give y'all a little intro before she even gets started. First off, big time, whenever I go to vote, whenever it's a big voting day, I somehow bump into her down at the county office every time. Just so you don't, just in case you don't know, brother from out of town, she's the mother of a state senator. She's uh, also a mother of an attorney and she's a, a performing arts administrator. And I think she's running for office as well. And you know, this is Black Men's Sunday. So on our show, we talk about getting wealth. So let me, let me give y'all some numbers for this sister right here. She's the co-founder of the New Covenant Baptist Church of Orlando. You hear me, co-founder and let me tell y'all something brothers this church here has an elevator in it yes you know she integrated the alachua county schools she was the first african-american to graduate from gainesville high school in 1965. she's also an author a brave little cookie And I want to get into that a little later on, but I just want to, you know, I feel like with all the critical race theory and all that going on it, you know, I feel like I want to ask you a couple questions about that, but we'll save that for later on. And I mean, she was born in the civil rights. She's married to a Bethune-Cookman dean. Come on now, she's got a master's from the University of Miami, undergraduate degree from Fisk University. So without further ado, it's Black History Month. Show some love. Dr. LaVon Bracey, welcome to the show. I am so excited to see you, sister.
1: Thank you again for having me here today to share my story. Uh, I grew up in St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, in the 50s and the 60s, my dad was a preacher and president of the NAACP, and my mother was a school teacher. My dad felt in the 50s and 60s, if we're gonna live in St. Augustine being the oldest place in the United States, it should be a model for the country as it relates to civil rights. And so my dad sought to change St. Augustine for the better. This is during the time of real segregation. Everything was, uh, there was no integration at all. And dad felt that Blacks should be treated fairly in St. Augustine, so he chose to go to meetings such as the school board meeting and ask them when were they going to start treating Blacks equally, when were we going to st- stop having to use the used books from white students and when were we were going to integrate. Uh, my dad was labeled as a troublemaker and they said that they were not, they were going to totally ignore him. He went to city council meetings and said, you're not investing any money in the Black communities. All of the monies were being invested in all white communities. And uh, he said something needed to be done by, about what was happening. So dad would have Uh, persons from a college that was in St. Augustine at the, at the time, to go to Woolworth uh, was a place like a five and dime place, and they would have a lunch counter, and we would have them to sit down at the lunch counter. This was during the time that they did not serve Blacks at all. The cops would come and would state that if they did not leave, that they were going to be arrested. So, The powers that be told my dad that he was a troublemaker and he needed to stop doing what he was doing, and if he did not, it was going to be uh, tragic for his family. My dad ignored them and continued to really press for equality for uh, Black people in St. Augustine. As I said, my mother was a school teacher. She was a reading teacher and by far was one of the best reading teachers I had ever known. So one day my mother's principal called her in and said to her, Mrs. Wright, you are by far the best reading teacher I have ever had. But the school board has indicated today is your last day for working because of your husband's activities, that we will no longer need your services. So mom lost her job because of my dad's uh, activities as it relates to civil rights. She then had to go and find another job. It was tough for our family because it was four children and My parents were accustomed to two parent families working, so mother couldn't find a job anywhere in St. Augustine. She did find a job in a place called Bunnell, Florida, which is about 45 miles from St. Augustine. And it really interfered with uh, the family's activities because mom had to get up very early in the morning in order to be in Bunnell by eight o'clock that morning. So she would work uh, in Bonnell as a reading teacher. That lasted about a year because my mom was called in again by the principal and told that Ms. Wright, we really love you as a teacher. You by far are the best reading teacher we have had. But the school board has indicated that today is your last day because of your your husband's activities in St. Augustine. So mom lost her second job. She was frustrated and disgusted and told my dad that he needed to stop what he was gonna do, doing because she was afraid that things would get really bad in St. Augustine and perhaps someone would lose their life. When things did get bad in St. Augustine, the Ku Klux Klan decided to burn a cross in front of our house. I was a little girl, but I will always remember them burning that cross. I was able that day, my my brother and I uh, went under the bed and stayed under the bed until the cross, uh, the light was put out. And I just thought that that would be the last day on earth. After the Ku Klux Klan did that, my mother gave my dad an ultimatum. Either we leave St. Augustine. Uh, I'll leave you here to fight the cause and take my four children with me. So my dad promised mom that he would find another job and we would leave St. Augustine. Before we left St. Augustine, my dad uh, wrote a letter to Martin Luther King asking him to come to St. Augustine to see if he could make an impact and change things in St. Augustine. Martin Luther King did come to St. Augustine things got worse. We left St. Augustine by night. And when we left St. Augustine, my mother instructed us to lay down in the car in case the Ku Klux Klan was following us. They would only see my dad in the car and wouldn't see any of us. So we left St. Augustine. My dad has a new church now in Gainesville, Florida. And my mother asked my dad, Promise me that you will not join the NAACP. You will not do anything to try to change anything happening in this new city. We are going to live like normal human beings. And my daddy promised my mother, I'm not gonna join the NAACP. I'm not gonna cause any problem. And you're gonna be able to find a job and we're gonna live just like everybody else. Mama was fine. Mom gets her third job as a reading teacher. Dad is now, um, has a church she's pastoring in Gainesville. Things are going well. We're living like mom said, like normal human beings. Until one day we were going into church and a lady stopped my mother and says, oh, Ms. Wright, I am so delighted that Reverend Wright is now the president of the NAACP in Gainesville. We are gonna turn Gainesville upside down because we have good leadership. My mom was livid. She was livid because my dad promised her that he would not get himself involved in anything while we were in Gainesville. So after church that day, my my mom said to my dad, "Why are you doing this? You know that I've lost two jobs already, and I'm going to lose the third one if you don't stop." So dad said to mom, "I promise you, I'm going to do this for one year, and I'm not going to I'm not going to start any trouble." That one year turned into eighteen years. So now dad is president of of the NAACP in St. Augustine. This is 1964. Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. 10 years have passed and Gainesville is still segregated as it relates to schools. So the first thing my dad will do as president of the NAACP is to go to the school board asking them when they will integrate the school system. Dad was told by those that were in power, we may never do it. Uh, we are not going to adhere to what the Supreme Court says and we're gonna take our time. Our dad says, fine. So he filed a suit against the school board uh, with the NAACP. And the judge said that they had to integrate with all deliberate speed. So now dad is trying to decide, how are we going to get parents to move their kids from the all black school to integrate and go to the all white school? His strategy was, I'm gonna start at the high school because if I started the high school and get 10th, 11th and 12th graders, I'll be able to see a graduation in in one year. And then maybe I won't have to do this too often. And maybe my wife will be halfway satisfied that I I said I wouldn't do it long and I wouldn't. So dad knocked on about 500 doors of parents trying to get them to change from having their kids to go to the all black school and go to the all white school. He found a 10th grader, he found an 11th grader and no 12th grader. I was in the 12th grade and my brother was in the 12th grade. We were not twins, I had skipped a grade. So my dad was so upset that out of all he had done, only two parents would agree. So I said to my brother, Why don't we go to the all white school? Dad will be so happy and we'd be together and we'd be in the same classroom and things would go real well. My brother said to me, I'm so sorry that dad is upset, but I am a senior. I am popular. I'm in the band. I'm in the student council and I have three girlfriends. I'm not about to leave my girlfriends and go over there where white folk do not want me and have a very miserable year as a senior. So you can satisfy dad if you want to, I'm not going. So I begged my brother and he said, absolutely not. So I went to dad, I said, here I am, send me, me. I'll go to the all white school. Dad said, oh, you will? I said, yes. He said, we can't tell your mom right now, but we have to plan this strategically. However, every time my dad and I would be talking and my mother would come around, we'd change the subject. So she felt that something was up. She told my dad, if you think LeVon is going to that all white school, you got another thought coming. She is not going to go. Well, my dad really worked with my mother and she reluctantly said yes. So things were on schedule for three of us to go to the all white school. However, three weeks before school, the FBI came to our house and begged my dad, let's not go with this plan right now. Gainesville is toxic. They are not ready for integration and we cannot guarantee the safety of these these three students. So we asked you to postpone this for three years. And my dad says, you've had 10 years to get ready for Brown versus the Board of Education and integration, and you've not done so. The answer is no, we will not postpone it. So my mother, after hearing the FBI said no all over again, So dad had to really talk with her to get her again to agree to say yes. Reluctantly, she says yes again. So the FBI said, gave some instructions for us going to the all white school. Number one, we could not participate in anything. And the FBI said to me as a senior, You cannot go to the prom. You cannot go into basketball games. You cannot go into football games. You cannot go into uh, a class activity. Anything where the students congregate, you are not allowed to attend because we cannot guarantee your safety. So I understood that I could not go to any activities during my senior year. So here we are getting ready for the first day of school. That night before school, I tossed and I turned because I did not know what the next day would look like. I got up, I was ready for school three hours ahead of time. Mom got up, fixed me a big breakfast, but I was so nervous. uh, I didn't really do anything but drink some orange juice. A mom said to me, regardless of what happens, LaVon just killed them with kindness. My dad had agreed with the F, uh, to the FBI that he would be responsible to taking all three of the students uh, to school every day. So the other two parents would get the kids to my house and dad would take all three of us to school. We were all every day we would have an escort with the police department, one in front and one in back of us. So the first day of school, we get to Gainesville High. Dad has a prayer for us and tells us to have a good day. We get out of the car. Uh, The 10th grader goes to her class. The 11th grader goes to his class and I proceeded as a 12th grader to go to my class. About six students surrounded me and said to me, we don't want you here. Uh, We have no use for you to be in our senior class. And uh, we are going to make this year hell on earth if you don't decide to go back home and to go to the black school. Uh, they spit on me, they called me the N word, and I proceeded to go to my class. When I got to my class, I sat on the first row and the first seat, and the entire class got up and went to the other side. And the teacher says, why are you standing? And they said, I'd rather stand than sit by a nigger. So she said, you don't have to sit by her, you stand. So I made it through that first day. But from that first day, I knew I had a tough year ahead of me. During those times at school, they assigned seats. So I knew where I would sit every day. When I would get to my class, before I got to my class, I got spit on every day. I got called the N-word so many times. And when I got to my seat, I would find tacks in my seat. Under my seat would be dead roaches, dead snakes, dead birds, dead mouse, anything would be under the seat every day that I got there. So I would have to take aluminum foil and plastic and clean the bottom part of the seat and then take the tacks out of the seat, rub it with some alcohol before I sat down. If I went to the library everybody left the library. If I went to eat in the cafeteria, everybody left the cafeteria. It was like I was in isolation all my, by myself. The hardest part of the day was try to navigate how I'd go to the restroom. I knew that if I went to the restroom when the classes were exchanging, that I would be attacked, so I'd have to go to the class, wait till everyone is seated, ask for a pass, run to the bathroom, and then run back. So I had to really uh, watch my my liquid intake so that I wouldn't have to go to the restroom more than twice a day. So every day, my parents would say, "How was your day?" and my comments would be, I survived. I wouldn't tell the 10th and the 11th grader what was happening to me because I didn't want to discourage them. I couldn't tell my brother what was happening to me because if I told him too much, he would tell my mom and my mom would just say, no, that's enough. You can't do that. I was in total isolation. From the time I got there in the morning to the time I left, I had no one to say good morning, no one to say welcome, no one to say anything to me. The students had taken a pack. My 12th grade class said that, we don't want to be the first class to make history. So we are gonna do everything we can to make sure that she goes back to the all black school. So they did everything. And I, so I had no friends at the white school. Then all my friends that I left at the black school, I lost them as well, because they said that I felt that I was better than them because I was at the white school. So I had no white friends and I didn't have no black school friends. So it was total isolation every day. I lived for Friday so that I can go to my church and see some kids there that loved me for who I was. And I hated when Monday would come because I knew what I had to face when Monday would come around and I had to go back to school. Well, I had gotten adjusted to being alone until one day I went to school, six white boys decided to jump me. They beat me and they beat me. And I thought it would be the last day that I would be on the earth. They beat me so I was bleeding profusely. And during those times, you had to wait outside until the bell rang. When the bell rang, I was on the floor, bleeding on the ground and nobody stopped to to ask me how I was doing or anything. I covered my head until everybody passed me by. I walked to the principal's office bleeding and told the principal I had been attacked. And the principal said to me, how do I know you didn't leave home like this? I didn't see anybody attack you. And if by chance they did, you ought to know that you're not welcome. So you need to go back where you belong and that's to the all black school because I don't want you here and neither the students. So I asked the principal, could I use the phone to call my dad? He said, no, you can't use the phone. This is long, long, long before cell phones. So I went across the street to a pay phone. During those times you had a red booth that you would go in put a dime in and use a payphone, So I went across the street, I put the dime in, called my dad, told him he needed to pick me up that I had been beaten. So my dad took me to the only black doctor in Gainesville at the time. And the doctor saw me, he says, oh, you've been beaten up pretty badly. So I have stitches from the front of my hair to the back from that incident. He says, you can't go back to school right now. You need to heal a little bit. So I told dad, I said, dad, take me home. I don't think I'm going back to to Gainesville High. He said, you don't have to go. So I stayed home about five days. I said, dad, take me back to school. He said, I thought you weren't going back. I said, you know, if I don't go back, they win and I lose, and I can't afford to let them win. So I'm gonna go back, and if they kill me, they just kill me, but I cannot let them win. Went back to school, they redoubled their efforts because they felt that incident surely would have taken me back to the all-Black school, and it didn't. So they then began to write terrible letters and leave them at my desk and saying that, you will not graduate. We're gonna kill you before graduation. They did horrible things. So I made it to time for graduating. I must tell you the teachers were just as bad as the students. the teachers did all they could to give me very poor grades. I transferred there with about a three seven out of a four point, and they tried their best to give me all D's and F's because they resent, resented the fact that they had to, tr- to teach a Black kid. So graduation time, and here it is, graduation day. My brother is graduating from the all black school and I'm from the all white school on the same day. And I say to my parents, let's not have a graduation for me. Let's all go to my brother's graduation. And my mother says, all the hell you have been through, no, you are gonna graduate. Well, I did not want to tell my parents how afraid I was because of all the threats that I had gotten. But my mother insisted, my dad would go to my graduation and my brother, my my mother would go to my brothers and my dad would go to mine. So my graduation was at the University of Florida. And when I get to go to my graduation, my dad get he drives me there and he says, get out of the car. Well, I was so afraid but I saw so many police. I didn't know if the police were there because this is the first graduation of a black going to an all white school uh, if they knew about all the threats I had gotten. So I kind of, when I got out and saw all of the police, I felt that perhaps they wouldn't try anything with so many police around. So I got in the line And I was able to go across the stage without any incident. And so when I graduated, my dad says, now that we've done this, let's go to the University of Florida where the university had been integrated for about two years. And I said to dad that I have to go somewhere where I am in the majority and not in the minority. It's gonna take me a while to heal from this incident that I've had. So I'll stop right there. And um, with the story to let you know, I did not let them win. I did graduate. It was uh, a real challenge. Uh, I was bullied and I was treated awful, but I persevered. So I'll stop there and take any questions.
2: First of all, I'd like to say it's an honor, Um, you know, just being in your presence. (sighs) We talk about heroes and real leaders. Um, And you're one of them and your father's one of them. It's definitely in your bloodline to be a a courageous hero. Uh, A lot of the kids look up to sports heroes and stuff like that. that. But, you know, when I went to a white college, I to a predominantly white school, Newfoundland public schools, I often thought about you know, who sacrificed for me to be able to take advantage of this stuff, right? When I go to work or I go to the store shopping, who sacrificed in the generation before myself to allow me to take advantage of these liberties, right? So when I heard people like yourself and your father, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for following your purpose, um, for opening up opportunities for me and other students and you know, African-American and other people in general to be able to have certain liberties. Thank you. Um, I mean, we need more people like you. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm gonna do whatever I can to continue whatever you're doing. I'm gonna find out the problems that we have right now that could be a continuation of problems that you already helped solve, And I'm gonna start finding those solutions as well. So I just wanna say thanks and I'm there with you, okay? Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, and
0: that's our commissioner, Scott. He has the National Engineering League where they've been in a nutshell. They basically give scholarships to students who, like, students may want to go to Harvard, gets accepted, doesn't have the money. His foundation raises money. He's out of Atlanta, Georgia right now. So, you know, he's a guest, a brother of mine, recommended, and he's been on every Sunday. So any other questions, fellas? How you doing? My name is
3: Eric, um, Mr. Player. Um, Again, I want to thank you for your story um, is definitely um, very educational and very, you know, we really do appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, I feel like it's something that um, need to be told. And we also, I want to, I admire your bravery of staying in there, and hanging in there, you know, when times was tough, you decided to stay in and, and, and handle uh, the situation. As a and, and and it's nothing brave, you know, during those times things were very hard. I would hear stories from my parents and my grandparents about how the struggle was. And, you know, just to hear that, it really gives us um for my generation, um just a an appreciation for paving the way to making it, you know, making life a little bit more easier for us. Still still not quite there, but we do appreciate. You know, you're pioneering, paving the way uh, for us to um, be successful in our in this day and age for us. So, I just want again just want to appreciate your your loyalty and your dedication uh, for paving the way for us.
2: Thank you. Hey, this is Commissioner Scott again. I have a lot of questions, but I don't want to take up all the time. Let me slide this one in real quick, okay? So, what advice would you give the current generation? Uh, for preparing the future generation of conscious, courageous, and responsible leaders pertaining to civil rights advancement, because it's a, the story you just described. I mean, that took a lot of courage. You know, people live pretty uh, good lives these days; and they don't want to risk their uh, comfortability uh, just to stand up for what's right. So, how can we prepare the next generation to look at civil rights? Uh, what may be wrong with some of the legislation that's going on, and stand up and be courageous and do the same thing that you did.
1: Well, I believe number one, you cannot fix what you do not face, uh, which is a statement by James Baldwin. And we have to make sure that the coming generation, knows our history and knows that there are those that have gone before them that have made the sacrifice. And they also need to know that there is all my, you know, my father said to us and we were brought up, there has to be something that you might, you are willing to die for. There is some kind of principle in life that you are willing to die for. And you have to believe that you are placed on this earth to make things better for the generation that's following you. I could not give up because there were too many people behind me that were depending on me. And we need to make sure this generation and the generations following know that there's still gonna be people behind you that are gonna be depending on you to make it better for them. And so we have to let them know that we can't afford to allow excuses to stop us from progressing. We cannot afford to let that happen that we have to persevere and we have to be creative and strategic around whatever obstacles that they have they put before us. I found out that I could survive by being silent. So I said nothing, they said nothing to me. Uh, and if, if I had retaliated every time I was spit on, Every time I was called the N-word, I know I would not be here today. So I had to find a way to be strategic, to get out of that. But that experience made me be the person I am today, because I promised myself I would never be silent again. I know how it is to be disenfranchised. I know how it is for people to take advantage of you. So I've, I've always said from that point on, I will speak truth to power so that people behind me will know how important it is to let your voice to be heard. I hope I answered your question. Yes, ma'am, thanks for the advice.
2: I uh, will apply it to my own um, problems I'm dealing with. Thanks. Uh, yeah, well, sure, I had a question, but I think, I think she, she pretty much answered it. I um, it was along the lines of what Commissioner Scott said. I'll ask it anyway. So uh, my question really is: is just from your perspective, like, like given the sacrifice that and, and the sacrifices that you made, and the sacrifices that others in your generation made. Excuse me, I'm also running errands. I'm in the store, but um, but how do you um, how do you see it from your perspective? How how does this generation and like you said, the generations following? Well, how do we how do we pay forward that sacrifice? How do we, you know, situate ourselves and, and, and pay forward that sacrifice?
1: Well, I think number one, we have not done a good job in teaching our own history. Um, I mean, we hear today about the critical race theory. And I mean, I don't know where you are, but I, I'm in Florida and we, We have uh, people in in Tallahassee putting forth legislation so that they'll make sure that we don't talk about uh, what has happened to us. I think that we have to make sure that the generation that is before us and generations to come will actually know about the sacrifices that their ancestors have done and that it's incumbent for them to honor their ancestors by doing something positive, making good decisions, making sure that they empower people that will come after them to let them know that they can be strong, they can be brave, and they can be successful. So I know this is a group to talk about wealth. We have to let them know how important it is that we uh, have generational wealth for those who will come before us. We have to let them know how important it is that, you know, it's it's good to have a uh, a real nice car, but it's better to, to, to be able to have a home that you own, uh, that, that you can pass on to the next generation. And we have to teach those things to our kids so that they will understand uh, what's important. When I was coming up, my parents, talked about education. I knew I had to go to college because they set the standard. You are going to college. I have two kids and I set the standard for them. You are going to go to college because I want to know when I die that you will be able to take care of yourself. And I know that you can take care of yourself if you educate yourself. And if you go on business for yourself, then I don't have to worry if in fact that you'll ever be homeless. So I think we have uh, an opportunity to make certain that we teach them the principles of survival. And oftentimes we have not done that.
4: Thank you so much for that answer.
2: And
5: once again, thanks again for uh, taking the time out to speak speak with us to share your story, and just thanks for the sacrifices that you made.
2: Thank you. Now, one thing that she just talked about, though, was interesting. I'll have to ask people, if you were to take a slave uh, from 1700s that was about to get beat and whipped, and you, he had an opportunity, he or she had an opportunity to jump three, 400 years and invest and have the opportunities that we have, you know, what exactly would he or she do, right? Some young people that I run into, even older people, you know, they don't want to go to college, they don't want to start their own businesses, they're just kind of comfortable and surviving, right? So, it's interesting to, to hear what you went through just to get your education to make change. Like, I think younger people really need to hear you know stories like this so they can say, you know what, maybe I need to do something else besides nothing, right? People ask me why did I go back to college because you know a lot of people fought for me to be able to have this opportunity to go and get educated to start a business. All that stuff, right? So I just think we need to get more stories like this out, so people understand what they need to be doing. So again, thanks for sharing that story. It's a pleasure, you know, listening to it and getting encouraged by what you're telling us today. So. Thank
5: you. Yeah, I got a quick question, Corey. How you doing, Queen? I appreciate uh, the the story and the life, you know, that you that you sacrificed to to go through to actually, you know, pave the way for us. Um. I'm 30. I'm 34 years old. I have two sons. I'm in Virginia, where, you know, we're in a Commonwealth state. But um, what I was thinking about, you know, while you were, you know, giving your, your testimony and giving your story, I was thinking about is integrating the schools back then, was that really the best move for our culture? Because I understand from a economic standpoint that we wanted to, you know, tap into the resources that were available to white people and that what from a financial standpoint that weren't available to us. But from an educational standpoint, do you think that integrating the schools was really the best move from us? Because I've been told by a lot of people, even older people, that from an educational standpoint that integrating the schools um, really did something to our psyche, as far as who we're being taught information from, and that since there aren't Black teachers teaching us information, how do, you know, subconsciously, how do we feel about that? So it's like, is integrating the school and education, was that really the best move for us?
1: Okay, I, there, there are two uh, schools of thoughts. First of all, during those times in the fifties and sixties, our schools, the, the facilities itself were so subpar. So uh, mm-hmm. They were not spending any money in terms of actually upgrading the facilities that, that black kids where they had to go to school. Uh, we had to use second-handed books. We didn't get anything new. We didn't get good equipment. So in segregation in the South during that time, it was a stark difference in terms of what Blacks were getting, in terms of what whites were getting. Now, when you talk about the caliber of teachers, that's a whole different situation in uh, in terms of how the states were actually spending money. I mean, it was quite obvious that white folk were getting the best of everything in terms of the resources that were available. Even when integration did happen, uh, unfortunately in many of our schools, they took the very best teachers that were in the black communities and then put them in the all white schools and then left our institutions with the subpar teachers uh, to deal with students and took the best that we had so that they can educate uh, white kids in the predominantly uh, white areas. So if, if you ask me, If integration was good at that time, I think that what happened as as it relates to integration, it opened the door so that a kid can go anywhere that they choose to go to school. If they wanted to go to schools with, with integration with blacks and white, they could. And we would have some schools that remain predominantly black, they can go there as well. If we had not integrated the school systems and they were forced to do it, I'm convinced that the resources would not have gotten to the point that they, that we would have seen it materialize because years and years, you know, they have been always saying separate, but equal. If it had been separate, but equal, that's a different story. If they had segregated the school systems and given us the same resources i say that would have been fine but they it has never been segregated and equal it has been segregated and unequal and so it, the only way that we could even see what benefits that they were for those who were in an all white institution was through integration thank you for that queen Okay,
0: well let's go there. Brave Little Cookie. Author, before you go into the
1: book, where can we purchase? The book, my Brave Little Cookie, can be purchased on my website, BravelittleCookie.com. Uh, and let me tell you, it's a children's book. And let me tell you how I got to write this children's book. I never thought that I would write a children's book. I had to tell my story at the League of Women Voters once, and someone that was there said to me, "You need to write a children's book because our children don't know history and now children don't know what some of the things that have you've had to go through and others had to go through in order for us to integrate. And I said, oh no, I can't I can't write a children's book. I've never told this story to children. Two weeks later, I was asked to go to an elementary school. I went to this elementary school. I didn't know what I was gonna tell these kids so that they would understand my story. So my same brother who would not go to the uh, all white school with me is a retired educator. And I asked him, I says, How do I tell my story so that kids will understand it? And my brother said to me, go to the grocery store, get a black egg, get a brown egg and a white egg. And when you go to this elementary school, you ask the kids, what's the difference in a white egg and a brown egg? And he said, the kids will probably say, there's no difference. He says, as you began to tell your story. So I did what he's told me. I got a brown egg and a white egg, showed it to the kids and asked them what's the difference. And the first kid says, there's no difference in the inside. The only difference is on the outside. And I began to take the white egg and the brown egg and tell them about segregation, integration, hate, and give my story and weave it around the white and the brown A. And so from there, I went home and told my husband and the kid says, why don't you write a book so that your history, so we will know your history too. So I told my husband that the kids asked me to write a book and he said, yes, and somebody else asked you at the League of Women, why don't you write this book for kids so that they will understand it. So I wrote the book for kids I had it illustrated so that kids will understand what it was like in the 50s and the 60s growing up. And I tell my story uh, so that children will know that they too can be brave, they can be bold, they can get through any obstacles that confront them and yes, they could be successful. So it's a children's book, bravelookcookie.com. You can purchase the book. Uh,
2: I know in my community, a lot of people never reached their potential due to fear. And what I heard Dr. Gracie talk about is just the, the courage that her and her family had to fight these injustices. You know, I couldn't imagine the KKK chasing me and me surviving that and hiding in the cars and all that stuff. So, what advice would you give to young people that they let fear dominate? Um, what they should be doing instead of overcoming the fear and reaching their potential. Any advice to the young people?
1: Well, number one, you have to believe in yourself and you have to know that you can be determined and you can be successful and that you are not going to let fear captivate you till you do not do what you are supposed to do. You have to make sure that you you tell yourself, I can be anything that I want to be. And I am not going to allow anybody or anything to deter me from doing that. And they have to believe that. They have to believe that. And they have to put things in place to make it a reality. I just knew that I could not disappoint generations that were depending on me. So I had to be successful. Okay, thank you again. Appreciate that.
4: Thank you for um, being a pioneer and making it e- just easier for us to just do what we do. Again, I think uh, uh, Eric reiterated that um, we've heard stories, you know, passed down and bits and pieces, but just to hear the full story and how vividly you tell the story, I've it it, it got me emotional. So just to, the the struggle that you went through and 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 the sacrifices that you made, um, so that I could. Um, I could walk, you know, you know, on your shoulders and just 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 walk and be free and not have to think about some of the things that um, you had to you had to go through. I I couldn't I couldn't imagine. I I don't know if I could have taken uh, or bared all that weight. So just thank you for being strong, uh, keeping the faith, not giving up. Um, There's no excuse um, uh, from a story like that. There's no excuse for me uh in generations to come. Um, but we do have to figure out a way to to uh get this out to uh the generations. Uh and yeah, that's that's all I had to say. Is just this is an amazing story. This has been one of the best uh episodes thus far. Thank you. And
0: Mama Bracey, just to let you know, he's our uh financial advisor on the line um you know all these brothers on here there's brothers on here that are business owners that are uh financial advisors accountants lawyers um you know we try to provide because a lot of brothers when i'm you know i work for the news so a lot of brothers i meet ah i don't see any black men that are in this profession so you know this is why we we're presenting that we present you you know, it's Black History Month, you know, and let's get into it, though, you know, it was Black, uh, Black Men Sunday and Black History Month, and the, the benefit of this show is we try to give creative nuggets um, to Black entrepreneurs, to Black men that just have hopes of a business, but they may not have the finances, or they may have the finances, they just don't know where to go with that. Like I said, fellas, in the intro, this sister is the co-founder Of new covenant baptist church of orlando and you know when when we think about a black church this church has an elevator in it so mama Bracey, if you don't mind and i I apologize i'm you know i'm trying to keep it professional you know you know but that's what i call it when i talk to her but uh you know let's let's talk finances because you know we're trying to build generational wealth i see brothers you know popping bottles buying balenciagas and you know thousand dollars sneakers and all that but They live in an apartment. If tragically they pass away, you know, there's nothing to pass down to the children. You know what I mean? So from a person and fellas, I also neglected to tell you guys. She also had an elementary school. Come on now. So let's talk a little bit. wealth while I have you on the line, Dr. Bracey, let's let's go. Let's start with New Covenant Baptist Church of Orlando how was that church um how did you guys even say hey we want to buy a church like you know
1: let's go well um we moved we moved to Orlando and my husband was called to a church there in Orlando and it didn't do too well um i well they they he had too many ideas of what he wanted to do and they did not want to uh change so um, my husband leaves the church. We 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 moved to Orlando from Philadelphia, and I was um nine months from being vested. So I was commuting back and forth from Philadelphia to Orlando. And my husband told me, says, this church situation is not going to work out. So I I need you to to come back to uh come and Orlando and I I leave a job that was paying me very, very well, come to Orlando, and both of us are now unemployed. Yeah, you know, he's left the church, I've left my job, and we have we have two children and no sources of income. And so I said, So what do you want to do? Fortunately, both of us are, are well educated. So I said, What do you want to do? He says, Well, I want to start a church. So we started this church, uh, we had nothing. And we started uh, worshiping um, at a, a facility in Winter Park, um, stayed there three or four years. and my, my husband was able to talk to people and understand that we can own something. We can put our resources together and we can buy some property, and we can develop a church, and we can develop a whole community whereby we are serving people that look like us. So in four years, we were able to buy 25 acres of land, and we built uh, a um, 30,000-seat sanctuary, um building we were able to have that building put up and we were able to ask people that we aren't going to sell any chickens we are going to ask you to give your resources so that we can actually have this church it will be a beacon for this community uh we had we we did that we had a charter school and then on the same property, we built a 156 unit senior citizen complex uh, as well. So we were able to have a place for people to worship, a place for people to be educated, and a place for people to live on this 36, 26 acres that is lakefront property in Orlando. Wow. Wow. And let's, let's, let's talk a
0: little bit, you know, cause there's a lot of black men nowadays, you know, that I run into on a daily basis. Oh, I can build generational wealth. I don't need to own a home.
1: What's your response to that? Well, I can tell you this. You can rent a home if you want to. And when you die, you have nothing that you have to give your children, your your relatives or anything, because you have invested and made someone else have generational wealth and you had none of it. And it's, uh, and and so many people don't realize that they can in fact own something and they choose not to. I used to work, uh, I saw in Philadelphia, I used to be the director of the homeless for the city of Philadelphia. And I have seen in a housing complex, I've seen the great grandmother, the grandmother, the mother and the children living in the same complex. I've seen four generations living in a a complex. And as you look at those four generations, if they would have pooled their resources together, those generations could have purchased something so that they can leave for the next generation. And what we haven't done, we haven't done a good job in educating people in terms of how easy it can be for you to acquire something that's your own. Uh, You know, it it takes and I say easy, but it takes discipline. It takes discipline. You know, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it in the own school that I started. I've seen parents who will send their kids to school with $200 sneakers and they're living in an infested place and can't see their way out. And they see what they're doing for their children, to send them to school with the best of everything and think that they are doing the right thing. Whereas if they would just take that, those funds, invest it in some way, and see that there is a brighter day, you can begin by investing in yourself. And I'm, I'm sure that they didn't have one ounce of Nike stock at all but they would buy everything that Nike would put out. We just have to, we have to train our people to think differently.
0: You know, you said something, you said they didn't have one ounce of Nike stock. No. So let's, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. There's, you know, there's a, a few brothers on this line that don't believe in a stock market. It's up, down, up, down. But you mentioned Nike stock. So what? Do, what's your response to, I don't believe in a stock market. I'm a black man. I have money to invest. I don't believe in the stock market.
1: Okay. I think Nike stock is about what? hundred and thirty six dollars or something I, I haven't looked at it
0: late yeah yeah it's about 136 and then, you know what you know making it bad because i had Nike yeah. in 2020 for like $50, yeah. I knew know right. what i was doing i right. thought the stock market was a was a a legal lottery yeah. and when it started dropping i sold it and then six months later i said oh man this thing is booming
1: but you yeah. know what's your response to that sister well my response is that uh you, you, you have to be able to deal with the waves as, as it relates to the stock market. They will go down, but as they go down, they will also go up. And uh, you have to decide when it gets to a, a point, is it worth now for you to sell, take, take, take your funds that you've made, reinvest them, do something with them. But I, I think that if you're in there for the long haul, that you will come out um, much better than putting your funds into a bank and getting 0. 0.0001 as opposed to investing that way in the stock market because you're guaranteed you'll make more than you would make if you invested in a bank.
0: You know, it's crazy. My man, Nelson, who's a financial advisor. Nelson, am I wrong? Or I, I could have swore. You said the exact the same
4: I've thing. I've said, said it and she said it just in a different way, but she said the same thing that I often preach on here and uh, to my people. So she is spot on, 100% correct. Yeah, you know what's crazy no about it. it. Yeah, that's right,
0: brother. <laughs> hey, and, and like I said, uh, Dr. Bracey, this is our official Black Men's Sunday financial advisor. And just to let everyone know on this line, you know, we, we keep it real on here. Our financial advisor, I do business with him. Our accountant i do business he's filing my taxes he's filing my wife's incorporation as we speak fyi in case y'all don't know my wife also does dr bracy makeup that's how i got the hookup so okay. <laughs> so let's take it let's take it up a notch you know um because we talked about you know the church but we haven't talked about the elementary school a little bit um what made you say hey i want an elementary school and you know, because it's Black Men's Sundays, there's a lot of business owners on the line. Talk about finances. Like how do you purchase an elementary school? I mean,
1: well, uh, number one, when, when you're a church, you have to, they have to buy into the, the vision that we can educate out on and we could do a good job at doing so. And so um we got our church to to buy in that what, what we were gonna do. Uh, first we we're going to put the, the elementary school and then later we were going to build the uh, senior citizens which we were able to do all of those before we ret- were before we retired and which means that the church will always have a stream of income that uh, will be coming in as a result of the things that they have done and the decisions that that they have made so, once they bought into the vision, because um, my husband and I both have educational backgrounds, we were able to actually go to the school board, give them our plan, and they approved our plan, and we were able to um, begin to have uh, a a charter school on our facility. Gotcha. Now, when we talk about
0: that charter school, was it a situation where the school was already built and you just took over
1: that school and renamed oh, no, it a little bit. No, no, no. Land no, we that you still, had to purchase. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, see, it's 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 all encompassed on the 25 acres that the church owned. So we didn't have to go out and look for, for land um because we've we already own the 25 mm-hmm. acres that we have purchased.
0: Okay, and we talk about land. Let's have this conversation. Um we talking about wealth, we're talking about generational
1: wealth how important is land ownership well it is uh, to me it's very important you know at, at my my age um um and i'm 73 my husband's 77 and uh, we often talk about what what we have acquired to leave to our children and so often our families have to start from the bottom because we we, 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 we don't leave anything for them um my children will not have to start from the bottom because even if I didn't leave them one penny, they will have gotten a piece of real estate that is going to be able to help them uh, invest in the future because of the house that we, we scuffled to buy and to be able to say is our own. It will be in their hands when we are dead and they can, they will get a reasonable amount of money from, from just the real estate that we're leaving them uh, that will enhance them and to enhance their children as they do the same thing for their children that we're doing for them.
0: I want to keep it on the financial tip, you know, right now, you know, I mean, like I said, church, elementary school, bought the land, let's have these conversations. Cause I feel like we, we have a lot of conversations, but we never really totally engage on land ownership, property ownership, owning the roof over your head. I mean, I meet so many brothers every day, man, I can rent, I got money. I got Balenciaga. I got the $200 shoe. She talking about, I don't need to own the property. Brother told me, Brother told me there's no difference between renting and owning. You're still paying monthly. The mortgage is just a cute name for rent. But then I pulled up my balance and I said, but look at this. I've been in my house three years. If I, if you move out of your apartment in three years, you just move out. You don't have any money.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I move out in three years. I got a buck 50. So, but, you know, we have our guest here and I just want you because, you know, I it's 2022. You're telling your story graduated from Gainesville High in 1965 this brother's out here his sisters out here that really don't don't see uh they don't really see their way in this world I kind of want to take you to the conversation because you know when I look at you know my man lives in Atlanta so when I think of Atlanta I think of Georgia when I think of Georgia I think of voter suppression I think of hmm It's 100 degrees outside. This guy is about to pass out. Let me give him a water. No, I can get arrested for that. So let's have a voter conversation right now because there's brothers that tell me my vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter. I don't need to vote. Let's have that conversation.
1: Oh, I love to have that conversation. (laughs) Voting is your voice. And when people tell me that they don't vote. It does not matter. Let me just tell you some of the things that have happened in the state of Florida. We lost, and I can say on this, I'm a Democrat. I don't know what anybody else is, but we lost the governor's race in Florida by 13,000 votes. If one person at each precinct had voted one more person, just one, not 10, one more person had voted, we would have had a different governor. If one more person at every precinct had voted, we would have had a different governor. We lost the Senate race by 12,000 votes. One more person. At every precinct, we would have had a difference. And when people say that their votes don't count, their votes during these crucial times don't, they are so critical. If your vote didn't count, why is it that they're coming up with all these voter suppression laws? They're coming up with all these voter suppression laws, simply put. America is browning. Browning of America has caused those in power to panic. And those in power feel that they are losing their power because in 2030, it's predicted the Browning of America. So they're gonna put in all these voter suppression laws so that people like those who believe that their vote don't count, won't vote. And those in power will stay in power. And we need to see what they're doing. And we need to decide that we are going to make changes. The only way we can make change is making our voices heard. And if we would vote in mass, we can control what happens all over this country. But they have done a good job in who they are. Those that are in power have done a good job with our Black men, particularly in telling them that their vote don't count. And guess what? We believe what we have heard. And as a result of that, They will stay in power. They will continue to put things in place that affect black and brown people in massive ways. So that, you know, you can say, oh no, you know, our our ancestors took care of what happened in slavery. What they're trying to do is, put some of the same elements in place right now that were in place years ago. And if we don't wake up, one day we're gonna say, what happened? We have a voice now. It is so crucial that we make sure that we don't isolate ourselves and determine that we don't want to be a part of that voice. I've just told you my story. I survived being silent. And when you decide that you aren't going to vote, that means you have decided you're going to be silent. And that's a hell of a way to live your life of being silent and letting somebody else make every decision that impacts your life. And so I got a question though,
2: Dr. Bracey. Besides voting, right? That's- definitely have to do that, right? For the men on the line, what is the expectation that you have from us that we could do something tangible that we could do or how we could educate ourselves so we could go back, lead our little sector of the community to get people more informed and in tune and understanding what we need to do, a little
1: small portion that we could do to affect the bigger cause. We have to pay attention to what's happening in our government so that we can inform others and We have to inform them based on what's important to them. For an example, when a person tells me I have a hard time making ends meet, and then they tell me that they don't vote, and I say to them, so have you ever had unemployment? Yes, and that unemployment just doesn't work for me. It's not enough money. They don't do right. And I said, and you know why? Because you decide not to vote because you have allowed those in power to make sure that your unemployment is not enough. I said, because those that are empowered determine how much money you get when you're unemployed. And when they find out that people are making decisions that impact their own life and their livelihood, then they pay attention. When I meet people who says, you know, I get it. I, I, I get food stamps, I get government stamps from the church and it's not enough. I said, do you vote? No, I don't vote, I don't get involved in that. Well, who determines how much you're gonna get? Who determines if you need more money and you have decided that you're going to be silent and take whatever they have. So if you need 50 more dollars to feed your family, guess how you can get that? You can put the right person in place So that when they vote, they will vote an increase on the money that you're getting. So when you get people to understand that their silence affects their own best interests, then they will begin to listen. You have to put it in such a way that they know that how they are being impacted by the decisions that have been made. And if they don't understand that, they will take that attitude that, oh, it's not for me. But you you put it on a level that they are making decisions that affect your household. And when they make them affect your household and you decided, I'm going to let you make them because I'm not going to vote, they'll they'll see how important their vote is. So take your circle and let them know, you know, when you don't vote, you know, you allow a person, you know, I, and I don't know anybody's uh, political uh, affiliations on on this call, but when you decide to put a president in the United States who then decides to give all of the tax breaks to all of the wealthy folk and folk who are not wealthy get nothing, something is wrong with that picture. Something is really wrong with it. And then they'll allow us, they'll give you uh, $500. And the persons who have really made the money have made billions of dollars. And you're saying, well, they gave us $500. Yes, you should have gotten $5,000. So I'm just saying we got to make sure that our folks, are not spending their time, I shouldn't say this, but I'm gonna say it on BET and all these other things that do not impact our lives in a positive way, and then never look at the news, never know what's going on, and they will just say, whatever happens, happens, because we will never make progress that way. Never. Thanks for that,
2: that input, Dr. Burson.:
1: All right.
0: Mm, and just you know, let me backtrack a little bit, um, because you know, brothers on this show, before we closed out, um, Black Men Sunday for twenty twenty one, there was a bill signed by Randolph Bracey. Hmm, who was Randolph Bracey? I think Rand. You remember she said she had two kids and that Randolph Bracey is one of those. He offered a bill that raised. The age that kids can be tried as an adult, fellas, on Black Men's self. We had Marquise, owner of the cleaning service. Remember, we got with the felony that we spoke with. Because of him, because of this sister's son, it allowed him to be able to, to raise generational wealth. Any comments to that, Sister Bracey?
1: Well, you know, as I said, I, I I have raised both of my children to believe, to, 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 to understand that they were put here to make the world not better for yourself, but better for mankind. And so it, it's tough when you become a public servant because you'll never be able to satisfy everybody. But um, my son's focus as a state senator has been that he wants to be able to go to bed at night knowing that he did something positive to make sure that people that look like us, things will be better. I mean, he's put uh, legislation in place that, number one, uh, we've had a massacre years ago in the Okoy area, uh, that's part of Orange County, where they burned down The whole area where blacks live because they tried to vote. So he was able to get scholarships for kids who live in that area now and go to a particular high school so that they can be educated. He also, our criminal justice system all over America is put in place so that black and brown people will, it's not. They say we're not in slavery. So they instituted the criminal justice system to keep us behind bars and destroy our families. And so that has been put in place. We we have statistics all over the country knowing that if a Black person and a white person did the same crime, that the Black person will serve far more time than the person who is white. And so he has put bills in trying to make things equitable into the state. It's very difficult when you are in a majority of party and those who are in the majority, in in a minority party, and those who are in the majority party want to keep those who are in the minority party down and not allow people to be equitable. So it happens not only in Georgia, it happens in the state of Florida. And because of the fact, if people would vote, we can can change what's happening in Georgia. We can change what's happening in Florida. We can change what's happening in Alabama if in fact we decide we're gonna have a voice And we're going to do something about the injustices that we see. Those who don't vote have decided they want to be silent. And being silent means I'm satisfied with whatever is done for me and for people that look like me. You know, you mentioned
0: the governor's race, and it it kind of leads me right to my next question, because the winner of that governor's race was uh, Ron DeSantis, who's, you know, in recent headlines, you know, I'm a news person, so I got to drop a couple. In the, in the recent headlines, um, he's talking about critical race theory. He's talking about, and just for the brothers that don't know about critical race theory on the line, it's basically incorrect. Correct, has, me, correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, Sister Brace, but from my perspective of it, it's basically teaching. If you're in a class, it's 50% Black, 50% White. You have to teach slavery. You have to teach. The history in a way where you don't offend students. What it what's is? Your, what, what? How do you feel about that? Because I mean, that's a big thing. So I, I really wanted to dive into that before I let you go. I know I'm sorry we went over time. I told you we only going to be an hour, but you're so good. I can't let you go. I can't stop asking questions. Well, but I got to ask you that. So what's your question? What's your response to your Florida governor saying, "I don't want the white kids to feel uncomfortable." about Black history, what's your response to that?
1: So what the governor, if this law passes that is now uh, been uh, debated in, in, in uh, Florida, it means that the story that I just told you, I cannot share it because my story will make someone uncomfortable. It means that if I am invited to talk on Black history, I cannot share my story. I cannot say that uh, I was beaten, I was spit on, I was called the N-word because somebody will feel uncomfortable. And as I said before, you cannot fix what you cannot face. And the only way America can fix the problem is they're gonna have to face the problem. They are going to have to face the fact that number one, that slavery did happen. That our white ancestors, white folk, have disenfranchised black folk. That they bruised them, they beat it, they beat them, they abused them. And as a result of that, that somebody needs to say, "Please forgive us," so this will never ever happen again. If we don't know our history, if you don't know your history, you are doomed to repeat the past as it has happened. So it is incumbent upon us that we don't let the DeSantis distort what has happened to us in terms of our history. It's wrong. We need to be truthful We need to tell it like it is, not only in Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, wherever it is, our history needs to be taught. Our history is American history because my ancestors built this country and my children and my grandchildren and their children need to know that the country was built by our ancestors that for 400 years in slavery, they got free labor. Imagine what you could do with free labor. That's the history of this country. And they want to act as though it did not happen. It wasn't a nightmare. It's a real story and it needs to be taught. So just, I wanted to
2: actually just circle the question, the the conversation back around to, uh... To education because you know, we have a lot of brothers out here right now, a lot of the angels' brothers, a lot of brothers and sisters out here right now saying, Hey, you know, I don't really believe in advanced education anymore. Like, you know, um, student loans is too high, you know, it's expensive to go to school. Um, you can make as much money uh, getting, uh, 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 you know, learning a trade as you can getting an advanced education. Um, and I know you're an educator, so. I just wanted to know how you felt about about that and I guess yeah just how you how you feel about that what your perspective is on that um and and you know what that conversation uh is like around education
1: well you know I I do realize that everybody is not going to uh, get a four year and a, and a master's degree and a doctorate degree and I do understand that, and I don't say anything against those who have decided to do a trade or those who have become, um, you know, to do business because they can do very well in business. But education has helped me to be able to navigate uh, in this society. Education has helped me to understand uh, what has happened in this country for the last 400 years, education has given me a platform so that I can speak, uh, whereas that might not be the opportunity for others who may not have it. I'm a proponent of education. I'm a proponent of making sure that you learn everything that you possibly can. And I just believe the only way that Blacks have been able to progress in a large scale is because of the education that they have been able to get. And that's my own bias. I'm not saying that you can't do it from other areas, but I'm just saying that if you educate yourself, very seldom is a person who's well-educated homeless, very seldom is a person who's well-educated have some of the other problems that others may have. The education has has opened up avenues for them to be able to maneuver uh, in this world today. And that's my assessment. You know, I'm I'm a religious person. uh, And one thing uh, the Bible says, you have not because you ask not. And I'm one uh, that believes in asking. Um, We moved to Orlando not knowing anybody and not having anything. And uh, we've been here for 25 plus years now and we've been able to found the church and do some things. My kids have been successful and it just did not happen. I I believe in mentorship. I believe in finding people who have been where I want to go and ask them if they will help me get where I want to get. Uh, I, I remember one of the first jobs I had I was uh, working at a community college and this white president said to me, I asked him, and I was the first black to even work there. And he said to me that, he says, I, I really want to mentor you and help you to get where you want to go so that you will be able to, once you get there, you can out, you can then turn around and pass the baton and help others get there. So I believe that what Commissioner Scott is doing is wonderful uh, in terms of helping to make sure that uh, our Black young men and women have all they need to get where they want to go. But I believe that we need to be mentored from those who know how to, to get things done and find someone that will help us. And once they do pass it on, don't keep that information to yourself, pass it on to others, help make us make the universe larger, not smaller in terms of those that we can help to help others so that it can continue the generation continue to help others. So if I have a mentor, then I mentor somebody else and then somebody else mentors someone else. And before we know it, we have touched thousands of people who are now helping each other reach their goals and get to the places that they want to go. I think about the things I really learned out here. uh, Now with the school went the
2: college, all of that, the more important knowledge that had came from people right? Like like you said, Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a little boy in the projects and I had people that really poured into me my mom, my dad, but my teachers, people in the community that just saw I had a little potential, but it was like, I was discovering everything out along the way. And people really showed me those things. You know, I had mentors that tell me about learning the people side of business, how to start a business up. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you don't understand something in school, how to Go to the professor, build their relationship up with them. Let them know that you're trying. And maybe they'll, you know, they'll see that you're making an effort and they'll look out for you you to become the best. So, man, I agree with you, Dr. Ricey. You don't know this, but you're about to be one of my mentors. Uh, (laughs) Corey's going to help us establish a relationship after this. And anything that I can do to help with your cause, let me know. I'm here. Uh, Last thing, you know, I recently saw my mother pass uh, last week. We had the services, and I'm telling you, Life is short. Yes, we're here is. for a particular purpose. We need to make sure we're doing what we're supposed to do. And when we leave it all behind, we say we impacted people in a positive way. So that's yes. what I intend to do. Keep up the great work. And uh, thanks for being there. inspiration to me today. Thank you.
0: A Brave Little Cookie. If the brothers want to grab that, we can go to your website. and Tell us the website again.
1: BraveLittleCookie.com
0: We definitely want to grab that, get that knowledge. Because, you know, I feel like these days when we're talking about the critical race theory and the uh, making the kids feel comfortable of the conversation. I feel like Brave Little Cookie was that before. I mean, even though critical uh, race theory has been around for like over 40 years, I got to let you know, guys, in case you didn't know, That's not like a new thing that just came up after George Floyd, because I feel like I hear that so much like, oh, critical race theory that was created after George Floyd. No, it's created before that, but it just... I felt like it was accentuated after the George Floyd. So like I said, uh, brave little cookie.com. We got Dr. LaVon Bracey and listen, fellas, I don't know any sister and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know any sister where her daughter's named after her. You know, you see the guys, you see the guys, right? Junior, junior, how many, how many people in your family or people, you know, period, where the daughter is named after the wife. Come on
2: now.
0: Ain't <laughs> she for Davis, Dr. LaVon Bracey Davis now. Come on now. Dr. LaVon Bracey, I appreciate you. Thank you for coming on the show. And you know what? We're going to have to talk. I'm going to have to get you back in like six months because I got a couple ideas. And, you know, as we, at six months from now, we're going to start getting around the voting.
1: Oh, yes. I'm going definitely. to want to have,
0: yes. I'm going to want to have you back. Like I said, there's brothers from all around the country on here. And this thing is, you know, like like you said, for, things to take place you have to vote so i appreciate your time i appreciate you i appreciate your toughness i just appreciate your story like wow like just going through that so yeah. like i said this black man sunday hope you enjoyed yourself hope you gained some knowledge dr levon bracy of brave little cookie.com. pick that up it's black man sundays so we out of here peace
2: Check.